Good morning, church. It is really, really great to be together. And I want to thank our worship team again for really stepping up our worship. It is uh, really, I don't know how you feel about it, but I can speak for myself. It is incredibly refreshing to be able to just worship God uh, for an extended time there. And, and we really are blessed to have such talented musicians who can lead us in that way. Thank you guys for all that you've done. And, uh, you know, I, I personally, I, I, we're going to get feedback. We love feedback, and I want to hear your feedback about what we're doing with worship. Um, but I personally really loved the, uh, the prayer uh, segment there, just having it open. And, and hopefully as we continue, if that's something we really like, it, it'd be neat to see what kind of prayer life gets growing here and, 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 and creating the worship just that much more powerful. So thank you for the prayer champs that stood up and were willing to take some prayers and being uh, bold to stand there. We're really grateful to you for that. I want to welcome a new couple to our ministry. They're dating uh, and that is uh, Matt Evans and Claudia Adadas. I mean, Claudia, Alexis Adadas. Sorry. Stand up. Sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Alexis Adada. Um, that was my fault. Um, Claudia is her mom, and I was looking at her mom sitting right there. But. Uh, we're really excited to have them. They've, um, they're members of the Valley Church for many years, and they've decided to make the transition out here to Simi Church. Uh, they're going to be uh, jumping in and helping out with our teen ministry, so we're really excited about that. And uh, they, they really have great uh, gifts and, and uh, are going to be a great asset to our, our fellowship, so please get to know them. So we're in our series, Following Jesus. We're following him through the pages of Mark. As I said before, as a church, our mission is to love and live like Jesus. And my goal, and every time I preach, and whenever Gio's up here preaching, our goal is to, is to form Christ in, in ourselves and also in you. It's called spiritual formation. Last week, we, uh, we had an awesome service out at the park. Was that last week? I, I'm so confused. Uh, but that was an amazing time out there at that park. And that park was a killer location, was it not? I mean, what, a, what a beautiful spot. I got so much feedback that we're going to go back there again soon. Uh, really excited uh, to do that. We've got a plan for it on the counter. We'll talk more about that another time. But uh, really, it was a great time together. But the Sunday before that, when we were here, uh, we looked at uh, 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 Jesus with the disciples in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and we, we understood that there's a point in every follower's life where we have to learn to let go and let God. And sometimes that happens a lot in our life. You know, it, it comes back from time to time, but we really do have to trust in Jesus. If he is the Messiah, then we have to trust in whatever his plan for our life is. We have to learn to let go and let God. Today, I want to encourage you. The theme for today is life is tough and then you die. No, I'm kidding. That's not the theme. That may be true for lots of people, but as Christians, the theme is life is tough and then we live. So a minister uh, who really loved to play golf found himself thinking about golf a lot and he began to wonder if there was golf in heaven. And so he began to ask God in his prayers on a daily basis, God, give me a sign. Let me know. Is there golf in heaven? And he'd pray again and again 
and again, and eventually, miraculously, one day, there was an answer. A voice from heaven declared, yes, there is gulf in heaven. As a matter of fact, the courses are better than any course anywhere in the world in existence. The fairways are perfectly taken care of. The greens are nice and manicured. They roll true. The weather's always amazing. You're never stuck with a bad partner or a bad force on the front of you or behind you. It's an amazing time. The minister thought, he said, wow, God, that's, that's so encouraging. I'm so, I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. And the voice said, that's great. Because you're scheduled for a tea time next Saturday. <laughs> Let's go to God in prayer. Father, uh, thank you for this morning and for our time to look at your word. Please speak through us, uh, to, to us through your word. Minister it to our hearts this morning. Help us to know that there's more to this life than what we can see and feel, but there is an afterlife and, and it's glorious. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're in Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were alone. There he was transfigured before them. Of course, on the screen, we have our map and, and our scriptures. And if you don't have a Bible, you can look up here. If you have one, great, follow along on your phone or on your Bible. Um, but we saw that, you know, two weeks ago, he was in the area of Caesarea Philippi, which was uh, in this area here, about 40 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And if we see this blow-up version of the map, we can see the Sea of Galilee here at the bottom, and then up at the top, you see a, a city named Dan, and then where the arrow's pointing, it says Caesarea Philippi. Jesus spent about six days there with his disciples. That's where he taught them to let go and let God. That's where he you know, asked them who they thought he was. And Peter said the Messiah. And then right after that, Peter blew it. And Jesus rebuked him and the rest of the guys. Um, and so you can imagine this was kind of a difficult period of time for Jesus and the disciples. They weren't clicking. There was, there was, a, there was a disconnect happening. They, they wanted him to be the Messiah. They thought he was the Messiah, but they didn't understand what that meant to be the Messiah, or at least what Jesus understood the Messiah to be. And so they weren't really connecting. So after a few days, they decide to head up to a high mountain, the Bible says. Now, there's two possible locations for this high mountain that uh, uh, historians say. The first one is way down here below the Sea of Galilee and Mount Tabor. That's one idea. That's one location where some people think this took place. But the text doesn't seem to indicate that. It doesn't really say much that they left Caesarea Philippi, that they traveled all the way back down below the Sea of Galilee. That's probably some 40 miles away. So the next location that's probably more likely for this, uh, this high mountain is this area up here, Mount Hermon, just above Caesarea Philippi. As a matter of fact, uh, Caesarea Philippi was basically at the base of Mount Hermon. It makes a lot more sense that when it said they went up on a mountain, that's probably the location of this encounter. Now, Mount Hermon is about 9,200 feet above the Mediterranean Sea. It's the northernmost point in Israel, or the area of Palestine. It was sung about in the Psalms as a place of refuge and refreshment. During the summer, because of its altitude, it had snow on its peak. And, and you know, we live here in Southern California. We know what a desert climate's like. It gets hot. 
And when you look up at the mountain, you go, oh, let's go there. There's snow up there. It looks nice and refreshing. That was Mount Hermon. It was up there. It was a very refreshing and, and beautiful place uh, that people like to go to, to get away. And so Jesus takes his disciples up there. Today, geographically, Mount Hermon sits between Syria and Lebanon. It's literally right on the border. The name Hermon comes from the Hebrew word Kerman. I'm not pronouncing that right, but it means abrupt. And so you get the image that, you know, in Palestine, it's relatively a low-lying area, and then abruptly, this big mountain pops up out of nowhere. That's Mount Hermon. You know, there are times in our life, if we, if we uh, uh, you know, think about it, where life kind of hits us abruptly. We're cruising along down the road of life, and boom, something just just pops up. Well, this experience that the disciples are going to have up there on Mount Hermon is like that. It's a very abrupt moment in their walk with Jesus. It was very unexpected. Verse 3, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. So they go up onto Mount Hermon after these few days in Caesarea Philippi where they just weren't jiving, things weren't clicking. It was a difficult time amongst the disciples there in Caesarea Philippi. They were having a hard time with some of Jesus' teaching, especially about his, his Messiahship and the idea that as the Messiah, he would suffer and die. He would carry his cross. He would suffer and die. And by extension, so would they. And that was just not, not something they wanted to hear. It was a difficult conversation. So Jesus takes them away. They go up onto Mount Hermon. And out of nowhere, all of a sudden, Jesus is transfigured. Now, the word here in Greek is metamorpho, the word we use for metamorphosis. Jesus underwent a transformation. The definition is to change into another form. So it wasn't like Jesus suddenly had really clean clothes on. His whole person actually became something different right before their very eyes. His own skin blazed like the sun. His clothes shone dazzling white, whiter than any white you could think of. It was a transformation. They got to see a little bit of the glory of God any further. Had Jesus gone any further, their eyes would have exploded in their heads. They would have been vaporized right there on the mountain. So Jesus revealed to them just a little bit more of who he really was. The transformation was for the disciples. It wasn't for Jesus. He knew who he was. It was for them. He was teaching some hard teachings. He had some difficult plans coming up in the near future. Six months away, it was going to get really ugly for Jesus and the disciples. And they were doubting and questioning, was he who he says he is? What, you know, we want to believe in him, but can we really? And so Jesus, in his grace, revealed a little bit of himself to them so that they could take heart, they could have faith, they could be 
encouraged. You know, the transformation is also for you and I. It's a story that's recorded so we can have confidence and we can confirm that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the Messiah. And that's something greater than one of the prophets or even a guy who resurrected from the dead, come back to life from the dead. He was something even greater than all of that. We're going to have difficult times in our life. They're going to come and go. And it's important that we can trust Jesus through those times. Those are the times where we get challenged to trust. Those are the times where our faith takes the hit. But those are the times we remember the transfiguration. We remember that who we put our faith in is someone more than just another person or a chosen one of God. He is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. And then just to to pile on, pops up Moses and Elijah right there. Two heroes of the Jewish faith. How they knew it was Moses and Elijah, I don't know. But there's a chance we have name tags in heaven. (laughs) At least for the first, first thousand years or so until we get to know each other. But somehow they knew who Moses and Elijah was. And there, Moses, the, the guy, I mean, the, 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 the main guy in the Israel, the, the deliverer of the law, Moses, who went up on Mount Sinai into the cloud when the, the cloud of God descended in thunder and lightning. And if anybody touched the mountain, they died. Moses went up into that cloud on that mountain, received the Ten Commandments, brought the law to Israel. He was the man. Their entire faith was based on the law given to Moses. And there he was in the flesh. Elijah, who represented the prophets, the, voice, the, the, voice, the mouthpieces of God, a hero. There he was. And the three of them are having a conversation right there on the Mount of Transfiguration, right there. And Peter, scared out of his mind, suggests that they build tents. He didn't want to leave. He liked that. This was cool. Let's stay here. Hey, let me get you some tents, Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Let's let's hang out here for a while. Let's let's have family camp right now. (laughs) I want you to notice that in the text, it says in parentheses, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. You know, Mark was written by Mark, who was a protege of Peter. He was like Peter's secretary. He was a disciple of Peter. Mark, some people believe, and it's possible, was a little boy and might even have been around for some of these because his family did believe in Jesus and he was a young boy and he might have seen some of these things. We don't know. But certainly later on, he became a partner with Peter and Peter began to tell Mark stories of his time with Jesus. And that's how we have the gospel of Mark. And I want you to notice that in parentheses, Peter tells us something about what was going on internally with him during this experience. This didn't, wasn't written during the transfiguration. The book of Mark was written much later when Peter was an old man and he was retelling the story to Mark. And in the middle of retelling the story, he goes, hey, I just want you to know, we were all scared out of our minds. Kind of like you're, you know, you're a child, you listen to your parents tell stories of the old days, and then they, they, they add a little bit of information that maybe you wouldn't have known if you were there, but you find out later, you know, they're looking back at the story, oh yeah, that was a real tough time in our marriage, or oh yeah, that was a real tough time in my life, or yeah, that was a really joyful experience that day. We're getting a little insight into what was going on internally with Peter. 
But it's interesting that Peter put it in to his gospel, or Mark added it for Peter into the gospel. You see, I believe that Peter wanted us to understand him. He wanted to be known by us. He wanted us to know that he was a real person with real fears and difficulties and challenges. He had real emotions during some of these experiences with Jesus. And he gives us a little glimpse because he wants us to understand him. He wants us to be able to relate to him. I think in a bigger sense, Peter wants to be accepted by us. I want to be accepted by you. I'm sure you want to be accepted by each other. I think acceptance is one of those fundamental truths to human nature. We want to be understood. We want to be accepted, not judged. I've heard many ministers teach this. I've read it in books. And we all tease Peter. Oh, Peter, goofy, he was so scared, he said the dumb thing. I don't know that Peter would like hearing that. I think Peter was opening up his heart here. Can you imagine opening your heart to someone and they laugh at you? Oh, how stupid. You're a dummy. Why would you think that? You don't want to talk to that person ever again. Because you're not looking for judgment. You're looking for acceptance. I think Peter was looking for acceptance here. I think Simi Church needs to be a place of acceptance. We need to be the kind of fellowship where people from wherever they start can come in and be loved. They can be understood. They can be appreciated at the beginning. That's where we start. Acceptance starts with love. There was this rabbi, ancient rabbi, and he had uh, some students, and he asked them a question. He said, how do you know when night has ended and day has begun? So his students thought about it for a while. I'll give them a minute to think while I drink. And one of them said, well, perhaps it's when you see an animal in the distance, and you can tell if it's a dog or a sheep. And the rabbi said, nope. That's not it. So another student said, well, maybe it's when you see a, a tree in the distance and you can tell whether it's a fig tree or a peach tree. And the rabbi said, no, that's not it either. So the students, a little frustrated, said, then fine, rabbi, wh what is it? How do we know when night has ended and day has begun? And the rabbi said, when you look at the face of any man or woman and see that he is a brother or a sister... Because if you cannot do this, then no matter what time it is, it is still night. I believe Peter was opening his heart to us here. And I believe it's pitiful that we mock and laugh at it. I get it. I mean, I, I'm sure as we get to know Peter in heaven, we'll be able to joke about it. But we don't start there. We don't start with judgment. We start with acceptance. We start with love. That's what I want to be as a Christian. That's what I want to be as a follower of Jesus. I hope that's what you want to be. And I certainly want See Me Church and Shoreline Church to be a place of love and understanding and acceptance. Because that's what the world lacks. The world lives in night. 
continually. And it's a church where the day is supposed to be. It's where the light is supposed to be. We're to be the light to the world. And we will never be a light to the world if all we do is judge. If all we do is push people away and keep them at arm's distance because they're different from us. If we're unable to see them as our brother and our sister. It doesn't mean that we abandon truth. There is a point where we tell the truth. But I'm simply saying we start with love. You know, I'm going to uh, uh, share from my heart for a minute. Our family of churches has gone through a lot of ups and downs over the years, and many of you know what I'm talking about. And if you're visiting, thank goodness you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but we've had our ups and downs. We've made our mistakes. And uh, a long time ago, we had a, a, a vision in our family of churches to go and make disciples. And it was a glorious vision. It was awesome. We were really zealous about seeking and saving the lost and, and reaching out to people. But as time went on, that vision began to deteriorate. It began to become complicated. And at some point, we ran into kind of a crisis in our fellowship. And, and we needed to kind of rethink some of our assumptions. And that crisis led to kind of a, a leadership change and a, and a whole shift in our organization as a family of churches around the world. We, we are part of some 600 churches around the world, and we kind of reorganized. But the problem is, and as I see it, and this is just my opinion, is that we didn't find any new vision during that process. We've kind of wandered around visionless. And because we had this original vision, we tend to want to go back to it. We tend to want to go back to go make disciples. And it was a glorious vision, and it's what inspired me to become a Christian in the first place. But as I've gotten older and as I've gotten more mature, I've began to understand that that vision was not complete. Making disciples was only part of what Jesus' ministry was about. But when I, when I go back and I examine the words of Jesus, what I hear him tell me is that the entire law and the prophets can be summed up into one word, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so I've been searching and praying and asking God, give us direction, God. Give us vision. What should we be as a church? And I really believe with all of my heart that God answered that prayer, and that vision is mission love. That needs to be our mission as a church. Thank you. For Simi and Shoreline, it needs to be what we're about. Yes, making disciples is a part of that, but it starts with love. Can you get excited by that vision? Can, can that replace the other vision? Can we change our entire paradigm in the way we think and move away from this effort, this focus on growth and baptizing and move towards love? Did you know Jesus, as far as I know, recorded in scripture, never baptized the person? But a lot of people got baptized around him. Because of the love that he showed, the love that he poured in the people, the patience, the time, the long suffering, the willingness to lay down his life. That was the win, not the baptism. It's the love that attracts people. It's the love that brings people in. Our leadership team in Simi, Gio and I, our leadership team, all of our 
uh, sub-leadership teams, our, our junior high champions, our high school champions, our, our family group, min, uh, married ministry champions, and so on. All of us, we're talking now about mission love. We're talking about what that's going to look like in 2018. I'm asking the church to pray about mission love. We're not ready to launch because we don't have it figured out yet, but we have a vision. Amen for a vision. The process is we're going to have lots of meetings. Oh, good meetings. We love meetings. Jesus had a lot of meetings, whether you like it or not. There was a lot of meetings with Jesus. You think you want to be a follower? There was a lot of, come on, guys, we got to huddle up over here. We need some meetings. We need to get together. We need to talk about it. We need to pour our hearts out there, and then we need to come up with a plan, not for 2018, but for the future of Simi Shoreline Church. And that plan needs to be mission love. What is that going to look like in our schedule, in our day-to-day life? There's a couple in our, our church. It's hard for me not to get emotional, so I'm trying to hold myself back because I'm so moved by examples of people loving. There's a couple. I'm not going to say who because they're modest people. But they have a neighbor, <clears throat> and their neighbor is a former adult film personality. And as you can imagine, um, a lot of damage comes with that kind of a lifestyle, spiritually, emotionally. And this, this person is, is very damaged. But this couple, they've, they've served that person. They've cleaned their house, washed their hair, brought them food. No string attached. No, no expectation of something in return. It's just love. And this person has said to them, what are you doing this for? Why do you even care about me? We just want to love you. Gio, so proud of him, so inspired by his example. Past several weeks, he's been noticing that his trash cans, when he goes out to bring them in, his neighbor leaves his trash cans out for a few extra days. Rather than complaining about it, Gio decided, well, let me help the guy out. Maybe he's busy, and he started putting his neighbor's trash cans away for him. He began doing this for several weeks. And out of the blue, the neighbor, who he's never really known before, showed up and said, hey, Thank you for putting my trash cans away. I really appreciate that. I'm in the military and I'm gone a lot and I just, I just, I'm super busy and I really, it means a lot to me. Thank you. They have now become friends on Facebook. I think it was just last week. I don't know when this was, but just recently the neighbor came over to Gio and said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm getting deployed. I'm going to be out of town. Will you watch my house for me? Here's my keys. A big act of love makes a big difference. A little act of love makes a big difference. It means something to people. I look forward to the day in See Me and in Shoreline when we can talk about our acts of love and praise God for the love that we're showing people, not for our performance, not for the outcome, because the outcome is the Lord's. He brings the fruit. We do the love. Please pray. Please consider, these next several months are important because we're going to be scheming and thinking, and, and I don't want to launch it until every member of our church has bought into the vision, believes in it, and is excited to do it at whatever level they're able to. So please, be praying about mission love. Verse 7, then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. 
Suddenly they looked around and they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. So they're in this like real Old Testament kind of moment, right? Cloud, people, Moses and Elijah appear. Jesus is there. He's glowing like the sun. And they're like, what is happening? This is real like, like uh, mystical dragons and lions and crazy stuff, you know? The kind of stuff you'd see painted on the side of a van in the old days, you know? And they're standing there and they're just like, whoa, what's happening, right? And then this voice, just like on Mount Sinai, booms from heaven. And it's the voice of God the Father in heaven. And he says, this is my son. Listen to him. Poof, all done, over with. <laughs> you know, you just like, what just happened? I really believe God was sending a message to Peter, James, and John, and to us, as well as the other disciples. Jesus really, truly is the Messiah. He really, truly came to this earth. He lived a sinless life. He died and he rose on the third day. He really is the Savior of mankind. And we have one obligation to him, to listen to him. Remember just six days before they were arguing with him. That's not the plan, Jesus. You can't do that. Going to the cross is not. No, you can't die. And they had this argument. And then Jesus rebukes them and they're probably holding a grudge. And then they go up on the mountain and boom, listen to him. Okay, we were wrong. Sorry. Yes. All right. Amen. <laughs> so funny because I spend a lot of my day, and maybe you can relate to this, but I spend a lot of my time trying to get God to listen to me. <laughs> you know, I, like, I, I'll start praying in King's James Bible. Though Lord, thou with your off. Like, I, I try to like, get on my knees. I do whatever I can thinking that somehow I'm making God listen to me. When I should be spending my time listening to the Lord. How much time have you spent this week? How much time in this past few days have you spent listening to God and the voice of Him in your life? You know, another thing in this passage that always cracks me up, and I, you know, as I've read this many times, I've heard people preach on it many different times. A lot is made about the three, Peter, James, and John. Jesus took them specifically up onto the mountain, the three. There was the twelve, and there was the three. We make a big deal out of the three. And something in us wants to be the three. And we think something's wrong with the twelve. And I began to read this and meditate and try to listen to Jesus' voice here. And I heard something. I heard Jesus say something, not audibly, I'm not crazy, but I, I got an inspiration. <laughs> I don't think the three is that big of a deal. Why the three? Because Jesus picked the three. That's why the three. It had nothing to do with Peter, James, and John. He chose them because he had a unique purpose for them being there. End of story. He had individual talks with Philip. He had individual talks with the other disciples. There were moments that he had special times with the other guys. We don't make a big deal out of that. But for some reason, we've got to make a big deal out of these three. They were somehow better than the other nine. No, Jesus had them there for his reason. Just like Jesus has you here today. You're here for his reason. You're not here to compete with my reason. I'm not here to compete with your reason. We all have a unique reason to be here, and we all have a unique plan that God has given to each and every one of us. Yes. 
we got to listen to him. Whatever our unique purpose is, the only way to finding it is to listen to him. Every one of us. Because he has something that he wants you and I to do specifically related to us individually. You ever wonder, how do you know if I'm a good listener? Somebody offer a suggestion. How do you know if you're a good listener to God? Yes, Clay. Someone says you're a good listener. That's helpful. We do what he says. One more. God answers you back. I'm going to tell you what it is. It's right here in the passage. Transfiguration. Metamorphosis. You becoming like Christ. Spiritual formation. That's how you know you're a good listener. If, you become, if you're becoming more and more like Christ, if you're a little bit more like Christ today than you were yesterday, you're a good listener. It's transfiguration. Jesus isn't the only one transfigured in history. We are too. Just not as fast. But it happens over time. And it happens through consistent and persistent listening to Jesus. Into his word, into that voice that he puts inside every one of us. God has a plan for every one of us. I don't know what it is for you. I don't even know what mine is all the time. But I know if I keep listening, he will lead me to it. And it will be glorious. And yours will be just as glorious. Verse 9 As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders. Not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why did teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. So, I'm going to do something a little different here. I'm going to teach this passage of the Bible. So for those of you that always go, it's too teachy, please give me 10 minutes. We got the inspiration. We talked about the cool stuff. But there is truth in the Bible. And we do need to know how to handle the truth. And I would be remiss if I didn't actually teach you the Bible from time to time. So we're going to do a little... Bible study right here, and we are into some deep theological stuff, and it's awesome. So I want you to follow me, because you may be reading this going, what was that whole conversation about? The first time I read it, I was like, what is happening here? It just seems weird. Well, let's put it this way. They had this moment on the mountain, transfiguration, this incredible life-changing moment, and a lot of times when that happens, we suddenly want to seek to understand it, right? That's a normal reaction. Well, man, just, you know, I almost died in a car accident. What happened? God, what's your purpose? Why did you do that? Or, wow, this, this tragedy or, or, or this good thing happened. Wow, God, how do I understand this? What, how should I think about this? That's exactly what the disciples are doing here. They're like, wait, we're, we're confused. What just happened? So let's explain. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus asked them to keep it a secret. First things first. Why the secret? Well, I'm going to give you a little hint. 
because it would have been too much to explain to the other guys. They wouldn't have gotten it. They didn't see it happen. They weren't there. It would have overwhelmed them. And then the conclusion would have been very confusing because the end of the story, or the story hasn't ended yet. The story of Jesus ends with his death on the cross and his resurrection to life. And without the end, it's really hard to understand the story as you're going through it. We live in the 20th century, 21st century, and we look back and we know the whole story. So we see the end, and so sometimes we, get, we wonder why the disciples seem so confused. Well, because it was happening in the moment. You guys ever read those books where you, have a, you could choose the different endings? You don't know where it's going to go, but then you get to the end and you go, okay, and then it all makes sense. Well, that's what's happening here. They, they experienced something so amazing, but they couldn't comprehend it because they didn't know the end yet. The funny thing is, is Jesus kept telling them the end. He kept saying, suffer and die, suffer and die, suffer and die, deny yourself, carry your cross, lay your life down, suffer and die. That's what he kept saying. That was his message. And they kept going, uh-huh, okay. They just couldn't relate to it because, man, he was feeding 5,000, he was feeding 4,000, he was raising people from the dead. They're like, the Messiah is here. It's awesome. Suffer and die. Yeah, the Messiah is here. Suffer and die. They, they didn't understand it. So they're confused. And specifically, they're confused about his statement, rising from the dead. They didn't know what that meant. So Jesus, somewhere in the story, told them that the Messiah would suffer and die, but rise from the dead. They didn't quite comprehend. What do you mean, rise from the dead? I mean, I guess they believed in some judgment day at some point, And yeah, maybe we'd all rise from the dead. But they had a very general, kind of vague understanding. It wasn't like how we think about it. So they were confused. So they asked him a question. Now, to us, this question is going to seem really weird. Rather than saying, well, what do you mean by rising from the dead, which is what I would think I would ask, in verse 11, they say, why do the teachers of law say Elijah must come first? Well, what does that have to do with it? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't follow that at all, but I understand why. Take some time, listen to God, research it, dig in there, and I understand it now. What they were asking him came from a prophecy in Malachi Chapter 4, and I'm going to ask for a volunteer to read this prophecy for me. So stand up where you are, first person to get there. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Read it nice and loud. If you're Italian, it's Malachi. Chapter 4, <laughs> verses 5 and 6. Who's there? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Somebody's got to do it. Go for it, Karen. Nice and loud, verses, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Is that right? Okay, so Malachi was one of the last prophets, and this was kind of one of the last messages from God to the people. And the message was that Elijah, who had already died by the time of Malachi, would come back to life, and he would set people back, to, he would turn people's hearts back to God. Then the Messiah would come, the, 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 coming, the glorious day of the Lord. Then that would happen. And that was the general understanding in Jesus' day in the, in the Jewish religion, was they were waiting to find Elijah. Because when Elijah came and Israel started to turn back to God, then the Messiah would not be long after. Their problem was, is Jesus kept saying, I'm going to suffer and die. And so they kept thinking, well, if Elijah comes and he straights everybody, gets everybody right, you know, everybody turns back to God, why would you have to suffer and die? They thought the Messiah would come 
after all the work had been done, and then he would just sit on the throne and rule. They had a very humanistic view of end times. They didn't think in terms of heaven necessarily or even eternity. They thought in terms of the nation of Israel having a, uh, being restored to its prominence and a king sitting on the throne forever in, in a physical sense. But to them, this whole business of that king saying he was going to die, if that Messiah was going to die, then that seems like the prophecy doesn't make sense because Elijah's going to fix everything. Then the king comes or the Messiah comes, right? And it should be all fine. So why are you going to die? So that's the question they're asking. They're actually asking him about the whole, why you got to die thing. They're still confused. They're, they're willing to listen now because they just heard a voice from God, but they're still confused. So they're having a very deep theological discussion, trying to understand what they just witnessed. Verse 12, Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? Now I need someone to read one other verse. Isaiah, verse 53, chapter 53, verses 10 and 11. Anyone want to turn there? Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. Let's not all jump up at once. Right there. Go ahead, Kathy. Nice and loud. So Jesus counters the verse in Malachi with a verse in Isaiah. And he says, look, Isaiah's not lying. I mean, Malachi's not lying. Elijah's going to come and he's going to turn the hearts of people back to God. But if you read your Bible, you, you, you'll know that Isaiah said that the Messiah will suffer and die. But then be raised back to life. That's why they were confused. What does that mean? Raised back to life. So the disciples, like me sometimes and like you sometimes, knew enough of the Bible to be dangerous. They, they latched on to a verse that they liked. They latched on to a belief and a, a translation or an interpretation that they liked, but it wasn't complete. It wasn't the full story. So Jesus counters by showing them another verse that suggests what he says is true as well. So Jesus, in essence, had a better understanding of the Bible than they did, and certainly than we do. It's really important as followers of Christ that we take the time to know the Bible because we can get really confused sometimes when we read it. We can interpret things that are just not there. We have to take, it into, we have to take into the whole story to properly understand it. So Jesus here is saying... Yes, Elijah will come. Yes, he will restore people to God. But yes, the Messiah will suffer and die. But he will resurrect. He will return to life. And then he says at the end, Elijah has come. But they've done to him everything they wished. Who's he talking about? John the Baptist. We know that because we've heard this before. We know the story. But they didn't connect John the Baptist with Elijah. They thought Elijah would literally come 
Jesus was helping them understand, no, it was metaphor. John the Baptist came as Elijah, in the office of Elijah, with the title of Elijah. He was metaphorically Elijah. And guess what? John the Baptist did preach repentance, and he turned people back to God. In fact, the Bible says that his baptism was a baptism of repentance. He was fulfilling his responsibility as Elijah to turn people back to God. And you remember from way long time ago in one of our other lessons, John the Baptist was the E.F. Hutton of the old world. When he spoke, people listened. Even Herod the king listened to John the Baptist. Thousands, by, by the tens of thousands, came to hear John the Baptist and to repent of their sin. John the Baptist was Elijah, and he did turn people back to God, and they ended up killing him for it. Therefore, I, Jesus, am the Messiah. I have followed Elijah, and I'm here. But what you don't understand is this isn't the end of the story. I'm not going to sit on the throne and rule. What I'm going to do is I'm going to die for people. I'm going to lay my life down for people. I'm going to suffer and die for people. But I'm going to rise again. I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to resurrect. And those that believe in me are going to resurrect too. They're going to come back also. Life is going to be tough, but then we live. We don't die. We don't get buried and stay in the grave as followers of Jesus Christ. We come back to life. What we live, this world we live in, this economy, is really just a small part of the story. The big story is what happens afterwards in eternity where we will live with Christ forever. The disciples... That was hard for them to get. They hadn't seen the resurrection yet. So he said, you know, just keep it to yourself. It's kind of complicated. I get it. Keep it to yourself. You'll figure it out in about six months when they see the resurrection. Cool story I heard once a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me. There was a minister, and he uh, got asked to speak at some big convention, and it was one of these... uh, sort of uh, gospel-y type conventions, a lot of uh, Holy Spirit and hallelujahs and dancing and singing and hands up, kind of like Jessica during, during singing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And uh, there was a lot of black ministers there, and he was, I think, the only white one. And it was a predominantly black congregation. So he was a little nervous because he wasn't sure how he would play in that audience. And so he got up and there were several people that spoke, and he was like second to the last, and he spoke. And he, he did, poured his heart out, and people were clapping, and hallelujah, and it was awesome. And he was so proud of himself. I did a good job. I did it great. And he turned around, he sat down, and next to him was an old black minister, an old guy who'd been around, seen a lot, well-known and well-respected. Thank you. And this guy said, he said, six words. That was his whole sermon. He walked up to the podium and he said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Jesus is going to suffer and die on Friday, 
but he's going to resurrect to life on Sunday. That's not the end of the story. The story ends with resurrection. The story ends with eternal life. And he said the crowd just stood up and went crazy and everybody was cheering and just repeating it over and over. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Life is tough and then we live. That's the joy of the Christian life. That's the purpose of the Christian life. I wouldn't do this if I wasn't going to resurrect to life. I don't think you would either. What would be the reason? Why go through all the heartache and the difficulty and the self-denial and the resistance to tempt? Why waste your time if you're not going to raise to life again? If there's no reward, forget it. Life is tough, but we get to live for eternity. It's Friday, but Sunday is coming. So the minister praying about golf in heaven, he realized, even though that he had an early tea time that he wasn't expecting, that dying isn't in the end of the story. It's not the end of the story for Jesus. It's not the end of the story for his believers. Just as Jesus rose, from again, rose again, we too, one day, will rise again. And all the challenge, all the heartache, will absolutely be worth it. I want to invite you back next Sunday. We'll be right here at 10.30 a.m. We're going to continue our series, Jesus Worth Following. We'll be going through the Gospel of Mark again. Also next Sunday, before church at 8.30, for those of you interested, we're going to have grief recovery introduction information session. 8.30 in the child care room across the hall, Sandy Atmore and Jessica Evans will be a part of that. Jessica Connor, sorry. Sandy Atmore. Jessica Connor, I thought I said Sandy Atmore's name wrong because I get her confused sometimes too, but Sandy Atmore and Jessica Connor will be, O'Connor will be, it's Friday, but Sunday is coming. So uh, Jessica and Sandy, how's that? They will be heading up uh, an information for grief recovery. Those of you interested, I beg you to go. It's an incredible program. 8.30 next Sunday before church. And then, of course, we'll have church here at 10.30. Let's stand up, close out with a word of prayer. Thank you so much for giving me your attention. <laughs>